I'm Susie Wiseman, and this is Jacobin Radio. Today we speak to legendary street fighting man, author, and playwright Tarek Ali about 1968, 50 years on, continuity and change. is Jacobin Radio, and I am Susie Wiseman. I'm very pleased to have Tarek Ali back with us. The last time we spoke to Tarek was to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution and the publication of his great book on Lenin. Today, we are going to be speaking about 1968, 50 years on, and it is actually the cover of the latest London Review of Books, and it has on it, We Shall Fight, We Shall Win, Paris, London, Rome, Berlin, and that was the slogan, and Tarek Ali was the street-fighting man. He is a playwright journalist, the editor of Verso Books. He's written dozens of books. We just mentioned Lennon, another really appropriate one that we should mention is the Extreme Center and 1968, Marching in the Streets, Tarek Alley and Susan Watkins, and so many more. But I'm really pleased to have you on Jacobin Radio, Tarek Alley. Hi there, Susie. Great to be with you. It's always great to be with you. Just to begin, Tarek, 1968 was the high point and in some ways the end point of the post-war boom. And today, I want to talk a little bit about 68, but I want to focus on 1968 as seen from 50 years later and the events of the moment. And what we're seeing now in France, an emerging wave of strikes with railroad workers especially prominent, and their slogan, or one of the slogans that was plastered on the walls of Paris, is we are not commemorating 1968. We are continuing 1968. And this fits very well with the slogan of May 1968 itself. Well, there were many of them, but one was La Lota Continua, or The Struggle Continues. So it's the perfect theme for our discussion, and it poses the central question of continuity and change. So we're going to talk about to what extent our struggle is that continuation of the one of 1968, and to what extent the world historical transformation that have taken place between then and now have shaped our world so it doesn't even look like 1968. And so to do that, we have to talk about capitalism, I think, in the beginning. 1968, as I said, represented the high point and the beginning of the end point of the post-war boom. And that was so powerful that back then we thought that that capitalism might resolve the fundamental material questions of the day. And that of the working class and the left and the socialist movements had always focused on unemployment, poverty, health and education. But now, today, 50 years later, and especially in the wake of the crash of 2008, the ensuing crisis, and I should say revolts as well, from 2011 on, capitalism is no longer seen as the solution at all. In fact, it seems incapable of addressing or even speaking to the needs of anyone but the top one or top 0.1%. And it's also quickly destroying all of the political and even physical gains of the last period, demolishing factories and stores, as well as all the political gains. And in 1968, the working class was the agency of revolution. Today, in the West and the rest of the world, the working class, everyone is more proletarianized, but the industrial working class is seen as a small minority of the working class. There's a whole lot of stuff I just introduced, Tarek. So why don't you start with the agency of struggle? 
Well, huge difference between the 60s or the decade which reached a high point in 68 but actually began in 65 and ended in 75. This decade was pretty unique in 20th century history because it raised once again the question of socialist revolution, what type of socialist revolutions, how they were going to be achieved. And there was no doubt whatsoever in that period that a decisive factor would be the moods, the consciousness of the European working class, if we're discussing Europe just to start off with. And here we had problems because the movement was very uneven. And in May, nobody could have predicted that the general strike of June 1968, with 10 million workers on strike or occupying their factories, would be the largest general strike in the history of capitalism. No one could predict that because working class consciousness is unpredictable. But at least there was a working class about with whom and about whom one could talk, have discussions with. And that, in some ways, was the most exciting feature of that particular decade. The French general strike, the uh, continuing wave of strikes in Italy, the demands they raised, the Czech workers and students demanding socialism with a human face. Had that been achieved at that time, who knows how the world would have looked. And then, of course, the 72 and 74 minor strikes in Britain, which shook everyone, including people very high up. So that period was a different period. One could now, looking back on it, say that that period was the last serious attempt to recreate the spirit of 1917 and the spirit of the Paris Commune. The could... 60s were a combination of Leninism, in the best sense of the word, and the uh, democracy and libertarianism of the Paris Commune, and the combination of politics and art and culture. It was all mixed up. We've not seen anything like that since. And in my opinion, we are unlikely to see that because of the context. Uh, the context has changed. So the slogan on French walls, we're not commemorating, we're continuing, is very heartening. Yeah. But basically the struggles now are defensive struggles. I would just add to that, Tarek, because you just mentioned that geographically and politically, 1968 went from Vietnam to Europe to Latin America to the United States, and we can't forget Mexico, then in Chile, where we really did see the last attempt at a working-class socialist revolution. Different, because it was done through the ballot box first, but nonetheless, you are absolutely right to say that the period kind of ended there, even though that wasn't the end of radicalism there. So if we go from there, Tarek, we could say that in the 50s and 60s, all the establishment parties, not just social democracy and labor, but also even Republicans, Tories, Christian Democrats, were all kind of classic reformists. They were committed or at least resigned to a slow but steady increase in working class conditions and the welfare state. But that shift began. And as you stated, that 68 was the end of the boom in a way. And then we get to lower profit rates, slower growth. 
endless stagnation and then crisis and crisis and crisis. So, and then what seems to be the reversal. And all the mainstream parties turn to what you have so brilliantly put in your book, I think of two years ago, it might be three years ago now, the extreme center. And it seemed as if neoliberalism was the only choice left and a choice that's now universally rejected. But the other part of it is that it systematically is uh, trying to dismantle all of the gains of the past, let's say, from the 1930s on, or maybe even before. So can you talk a little bit about just that aspect, focusing on how we've reached the political limits to neoliberalism, which neoliberalism itself is coming up against today? I think to understand the total triumph of neoliberalism from the 90s onwards, we have to understand the real global impact of the collapse of the Soviet Union and all that world. This was very underestimated by the far left in particular, but not just them. Many people thought that now it was a clean slate and it was our chance to do that, which was crazy because that collapse of the Soviet Union was seen by millions and millions of people in the world as a huge defeat. Now nothing is possible. And it's very interesting, after the 2008 crash, there was a discussion on US television, mainstream television, and the interviewer asked, I think it was Robert Reich or some other big wheel from the Clinton days, but the question posed to this guy, which I recall very vividly was, But how come that after the 29 crash, we moved pretty rapidly onto the New Deal and had these massive reforms, and the same thing should be done now? Capitalism can do it. Why, Why won't it do it? And the reply came, in those days, we had a country called the Soviet Union, and we assumed that if we didn't do something revolution, communism, socialism was going to break out all over the world, so we had to do it. Now there's nothing like that. There are no alternatives. So capitalism feels it can get away with murder, which it does. And I thought pretty intelligent, not bad at all. And of course, there is a strong element of truth in that. Capitalism, its institutions, its political parties, its media networks, do not feel threatened by most of the things that exist in our world. And that is the new context which makes struggles defensive. So even when you have huge movements like occupations in the Middle East, like the big occupation of the squares in Spain, which produces Podemos, and you have the the occupation movement in the United States, no political slogans came out of these movements. It was a generalized attack, anti-capitalist gut instinct, and what the 1% versus the 99%, which is an interesting slogan, mainly for PR, because within that 99%, you have hell of a lot of differentiation in the way in which people think, and quite a lot of that 99%, unfortunately, support the system. 
You know, it's not that they've broken from the system. They support the system and want changes within it. That's the big difference. And I think that if you look at all these struggles taking place today, they are struggles for what? They are struggles where people are on their knees, looking up to their rulers and saying, all we want is a little bit of social democracy. Please won't you let us have it. Very few struggles are going beyond that. And this desire to get something, you know, I'm not sort of criticizing it. That's all people feel can be achieved at the moment, which is why, you know, foolish left sectarians living in a dream world in their bubbles, thinking more is possible, do not explain how it's possible where it's possible, and who will bring it about. I mean, if we're talking seriously, the largest proletariat in the world today is in China, the second largest in uh, India, and in the Far Eastern sector. In Europe, there's been a huge decline via deindustrialization, closing down factories. The European Union, of course, has played a huge role, acting as the engine of neoliberalism. So, you know, they go in, they take over, people want to join them, so they get some money. But I remember being in Croatia some years ago, going into a town for a literature festival, beautiful town, and discussing with people and activists there. And they said, Tarek, there used to be two factories here. It's a small town. And these two factories employed hell of a lot of people. Since we've joined the EU, one of the factories has closed down completely, so half the population here is unemployed. And this pattern on different levels is repeated place and place again. And either that or you have economies like the British economy, which has denounced trade unionism, given people zero uh, wage contracts, and a situation which Ken Loach depicted well in his last great film. I, Daniel Blake. So that's where we are at the moment. And I think progress is possible, but I think it's only possible if you are very hard-headed about what is going on today and what isn't going on today. So, for instance, things that are happening in your country, in the States, like the DSA is formed, it is 30,000 members. Great. The question is, what are the strategy and tactics going to be? Because as we all know, in the United States, it's largely a question of geography and the size of this country, where it's not easy for progressive forces to, so you have to concentrate cities, states, have a dual strategy of movements, but also political ideas based on these movements and standing, taking on the mainstream in local elections. The Seattle example wasn't such a bad one. And thinking, can it be repeated in Chicago? Can it be repeated in the Bay Area? Right. Well, Tarek, I just want to go back over some of what you've said, because I completely agree that at the time when the Soviet Union imploded and disintegrated, people didn't realize that not just social democracy would be disintegrating as well, but even you could say 
democracy itself in the way that we knew it. And you could also say that, as you did, that social democracy was capitalism's response to the existence of the Soviet Union and to a labor movement that was challenging the status quo and demanding a lot and winning a lot. Now, we're in a very different world. And you went to Occupy and its slogan. And I think that just to give it a very optimistic spin, and I'm teaching a lot of kids today, the one thing you can say is they don't know what socialism is. They want to know. They're joining DSA. They came out of Occupy. They realize that their future is that of a gregarious precariat and that they aren't going to have the security. So the difference between 68 and now is they're fighting for their own futures and not just in solidarity with struggles elsewhere in the world in a way we haven't seen for a very long time. And so you're absolutely right. It went to DSA and it went to Corbyn in Britain and it went to, it's going to Sanders here. But did you ever think that demanding social democracy or some form of reform would now be a revolutionary struggle? Given well, it is. I mean, <laughs> yeah. and you know, the way they react against it, wow. the media yeah. and uh, mainstream politicians, the campaign against Corbyn in Britain is horrendous. I've wow. not seen anything like it. And the latest is they're denouncing him as an anti-Semite because right. he wants justice for Palestine. It's, it's unbelievable. It's quite quite disgusting and the way in which it's scaring people off even from talking about Palestine in some cases. So the aim is to discredit him on this and other fronts because they're petrified. And, you know, his program, the Labour Party program for the last election was, which they said, oh, it's radical, etc., etc. Well, it was compared to neoliberalism. There's no doubt about that. But basically what it was demanding was a reversion to some tried and tested social democratic policies which defend the poor. That's what that manifesto was about and taking back into public ownership things that should never have been privatized in the first place, like the railways, like the utilities, etc. Now, the problem is that if there is no, let's put it like this, combination of mass movements and left social democracy, if they don't exist, then what happens is that people shift to the right. Because very interestingly, the European right, which interestingly enough, used to be pretty, most of it, used to be pretty pro-Europe, pro the European Union. Marine Le Pen's father, Jean-Marie Le Pen in the National Front, was a firm supporter of Maastricht. But seeing what's happened, they've actually stolen quite a lot of the left's policies here and in Italy. I mean, uh, Salvini, who currently is the leader of this racist uh, Lega, the um, far-right party, is a former communist. And the only politician in the country capable of addressing ordinary people and understanding their needs, but the far-right side of him, of course, demands the deportation of migrants. So you play, and that, I hate to say this, it's not an unpopular demand. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and I'm speaking with Tarek Ali. Maybe before you go there, let's just put that into context, because, you know, we've seen now the rise of the, as you're starting to say, Tarek Ali, the far-right populist, the right populist. We've got Trump here, who, in fact, has done none of what he promised except get really tough at the border and on migration. So this is the issue you raised. Brexit in Britain. But now, because of what's going on in Italy, let's say it this way, 
the old dist white working class has now moved to the right. And many of them, as you just said, were former communist supporters. And now that coalition in Italy has just been waved into power. It wasn't quite certain if it would be. But maybe let's do this Cook's tour, if you could, Tara Galli, of the progress of these right-wing politics across the West, from the U.S. to the U.K., throughout Europe and beyond. Well, I think that a big reason for the growth of the far right in most of these places is the collapse of social democracy or its sort of equivalents like the Democrats in the United States. I get a bit cross, I'm not saying you're doing it, but I get a bit cross when I read articles in the liberal press saying that all the people voted, not all, most of the people who voted for Trump for racists. I mean, for God's sake, in the Rust Belts, the same people had voted Obama not once but twice. Exactly. It's because he refused to deliver, because he couldn't deliver, didn't want to deliver, because he was a sort of creature of Wall Street. They went back on him and they didn't find Hillary credible. I mean, who can blame them? And Trump was promising all sorts of things to them. So I think this is the problem, that a vacuum exists. The liberal left has collapsed, except when there was a chance of getting Sanders elected, people who hadn't been active in politics ever, or some who had been and given up, came out again to try and get Sanders the nomination, which was quashed brutally. And vilely by Clinton and her supporters and Obama and the Democrat machine, and they've got Trump instead. And instead of recognizing this fact, they're now blaming Putin. Had it not been for Putin, we would have won. I mean, how blind can you be? You can't see what's happening in your own country. People have elected a white supremacist president, blatantly so, quite nutty in the way he operates. People are laughing at the United States all over the world because of him. You've done all this and you refuse to understand the reasons why this has happened and how to stop it happening in the future. In Britain, we had continuous policies launched by Mrs. Thatcher, taken further by Social Democrats, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, and then the collapse of that. And in Britain, it happened in a different way, that here we got our Bernie Sanders, the leadership of the Labour Party. And in the last elections, the vote went up. Labour's vote went up by a million. It got the second highest vote in its entire history. Whether he'll win or not, I don't know. I hope he does. I think he probably can. But... In France, you have a polarized country. The extreme center collapses. You have the far right on one side and Mélenchon on the, you know, defiant France on the other. And we have to mention that Daniel Combendit, one of the heroes of 68, is advising Macron, as you say, in your London Review piece. Yeah, well, he is. And, you know, lots of people have renegated. This guy is sort of completely uh, shameless. He... In the piece, he he was interviewed by the New York Review of Books, a pathetic interview, completely servile, where he said that the true heir of 68 is Macron. So, I mean, uh, you know, any of we shouldn't waste too much time on these people. They're politically dead as far as the left is concerned. But in France, it was a mixed result. 
the Macron phenomena was hurriedly put together by the elite and the banks, and no doubt the intelligence services as well. And so the entire French press played the election as if it was between, even in the first round, the fight is uh, between Macron versus Le Pen, and they really hit Mélenchon badly. And the far left, the Trotskyists, were crazy not to vote for Mélenchon in the first round. That was the difference. Had they all told their members, few though they are, Mélenchon would have been the second candidate in the first round, and the second round clash would have been between Macron and Mélenchon, which would have created a totally different atmosphere in the country. So France is polarized and divided, as we see in this strike wave and the student uprisings and the university occupations. In Italy, we've had a victory for the center and right parties, but a complete collapse of the extreme center. And the virtual elimination of the groups to the left of it. They all did very badly. So from the point of view of the left, Italy has been a disaster. But what some of the promises the right populists are making, were these to be carried out? I mean, for instance, on foreign policy, they're saying they're going to demand an end to sanctions against Russia. On domestic policy, is there for a universal income? All sorts of things that the left has never done in that country or even talked about. The worst thing they're offering, of course, also is the deportation of tens of thousands of migrants. But even here, Susie, they are awful, but they're not the only ones. The French socialists deported large numbers of gypsies, traveling people back to Romania and Bulgaria. Britain has got a salami tactic of deporting people, including people who came here decades ago and were promised nationality. And in and the US, yeah. Yeah, Obama deported hell of a lot of so-called illegal immigrants. And so this is a current today in mainstream politics. So attack the Italians, I do it nonstop. But don't just attack them without contextualizing it. They've gone further than the mainstream in doing it. In Germany, the third party was an extreme right party whose members and leaders come from both Christian democracy and social democracy. It's founded by a social democrat. Basically, it's a Germany first party saying enough of migrants, enough of refugees. Let's think about the German people and German workers who they say are suffering. Eastern Europe is a total and complete mess with Hungary led by extreme right wing party, Poland likewise. But there is some resistance in Poland, especially by the women. The women's movement in Poland has been very, very strong, as in Ireland, as we've seen. The results are concrete results. So we can celebrate all these results. But it's on an overall level that I'm not over-optimistic, let me put it like that, because the situation is not good. Can you tell us a little bit more about, in Italy, what the Five Star Movement and the government are like? Because there's a lot of confusion about whether or not they're a far-right party, or they're a center-right party, or there's aspects of the left within them. Or are these no longer important signifiers? The Five Stars 
has divided the left, there's no doubt about it. It's their own self-description is accurate to a certain extent. They say we're neither left nor right. It's a bit over clever because there are lots and lots of people on the far left voted for the five stars on the grounds that they were the only serious anti-establishment party and, and they refused to vote for the existing parties. They wanted some form of change. So the five stars is, you know, there's still a question mark on how it will evolve. The Liga Norda, formerly the Northern League, was used to be led by a politician called Bossi, who's one of whose famous remarks was that Garibaldi didn't unite Italy, he divided Africa. And he wanted to break the North off from the south of Italy, denouncing the southerners as bloodsuckers and migrants who've taken all the wealth away from the north and too many subsidies to the south. This change of leadership followed a change of political line where they held to their anti-immigrant policy. I mean, but they stopped attacking the Italian south and they stopped calling themselves Liga Norda, the Northern League, it's just the league. And I think for the first time ever, they got about 9% of the votes in Sicily. So they are now saying we are an all-Italian party, but we fight for the rights of Italian people, and they're suffering because of refugees and migrants, and the way the system functions. What has made both the parties popular is the hostility to the euro and the European currency mechanism. They don't like it, and they say that if we come to power, we're going to defend Italy's interests first, not the interests of the German banks. So this has made them quite popular, and which is why the Italian establishment, which tried to stop them forming a government, had to retreat because the Italian elite and its bankers and technocrats, as well as the EU elite, were scared out of their heads that if there's another election, the Liga might overtake the five stars and we might have a much, much harder government to contend with than we do now. And the election campaign would be for the EU or against the EU. And the elite would be uncritically for the EU. And these people would be very critical. They wouldn't say we're pulling out or anything, but they'd be very critical of the EU. And they would win. I mean, at the moment, the coalition has between 60 and 70 percent support. When the five stars put it to their membership online, 95 percent of the membership voted for a coalition with these people. Because that was the big issue. So I think the desperation to have something different, and for this we have to blame the complete imbecility of the Italian Democrats getting worse and worse with Renzi, the sort of second-rate politician from Florence, mimicking Tony Blair. Like Macron is doing now, they don't even realize how loathed Blair is in his own country. It's not a good situation, but at the same time, there is resistance. It's not the case that nobody is resisting. In Germany, we have the left party, 
which could be tougher, actually. The left party's big strategic error now is constantly, or uh, the majority wing of it, constantly wanting to be in alliance with the Social Democrats, whose vote dropped to the lowest ever in its entire history, 15%. I think when the party was first founded, it was about that. So this is the situation. Well, let's go back, Tarek, because what we said just before you did this Cook's tour in a way is that the old reformist politics are hardly even a memory. I think you quote in your London Review article that people didn't even know that higher education was free in Britain or that the railways were part of the state. And I can say many of the same things here, too, in the United States. We see that all the time. So reformism collapsed, and now to even struggle for those reforms is so threatening that we get repression, and then you see the politics that you have described. But you began to talk about the collapse of the left going from the collapse of the Soviet Union and social democracy, And even though we're seeing glimmers of it in Britain and in all of these places that you mentioned, do you see the traditional parties of the left in terminal crisis and this is an opportunity? How do you see where the left is now and what can possibly be done? Look, politics is so volatile at the moment, Susie, that we can't exclude anything. (laughs) We shouldn't exclude a revival of the social democrats, you know, as people go through this particular phase. And nor should we exclude the possibility that the, you know, non-traditional left might do quite well in the years to come in some parts of Europe. And the reason for this is that the economic system is just not trusted by anyone. The 2008 Wall Street crash was a decisive event in the history of the 21st century. We shouldn't forget that. That on the one level, and then the revival, if you like, of intercapitalist contradictions that we are seeing with Trump angering Europe by saying he's going to, you know, the U.S. is going to act in its own interests, which they haven't done, to be fair to them, since the Second World War. I mean, without the United States, German and Japanese capitalism would not have been revived. The only reason they revived it was because the Chinese Revolution, the existence of the Soviet Union, the Vietnamese Revolution, later the Cubans, they saw a divided world. And they said, we have to strengthen our side. They don't need to do that any longer. That is what the sort of grain of truth in what Trump says and some of his people. We don't need to satisfy the Europeans. What for? We've saved them twice. We've spent a lot of money. Do we need them? Perhaps when we fight the odd war in Africa, it's good to have the French or the Brits with us. But even that is not necessary. So we are witnessing a shift. And I think by the end of this century, or even by by 2050, the contours of the world in which we live will become clearer. And it will be China and the United States with lots of states in between. So what happens in China, which is not followed that well in the Western world, including by the left, is going to be very interesting because China now has the largest proletariat and it has an intelligentsia like none other, not unified by any means, 
Some of them are very pro, you know, Hayek and people like that. But there is a large current within the intelligentsia which is very interested in the things the left is saying, in their, the history of their own party, their revolution, etc. So there are no certainties in the world today, either for the ruling class or for us. There is a lot to play for. Well, okay. Thank you, Tarek. Let me just ask you finally, you said that in the short term, you're not optimistic, but you know, you've just painted this picture of a revival of, I guess, in a way, proletariat allied with intelligentsia in the place where there is a large proletariat. So does that give you grounds for hope? Well, I never give up on hope, Susie, because the only serious alternative to hope is despair. And if you start despairing, you become inactive, get obsessed with yourself, become self-obsessed, move into ways which are not political, highlight things which on the scale of the world are not very relevant, etc., etc. Whereas hope keeps you on your feet and keeps you thinking. And I don't think we should deceive ourselves, as some people tend to do, that every small thing that erupts, hurrah, hurrah, this is it. We can support it, we can celebrate it, but we have to understand it on a more universal scale. Well, I want to thank you for contributing to that understanding tonight, Tarek, and for staying up to talk to us. It's been really a pleasure. I should let people know that they can go to the London Review Books issue for 24th May. The actual cover is the cover of The Old Black Dwarf, which you originated with others and which, you know, was so dear to all of us. We shall fight, we shall win, Paris, London, and Berlin. Yes. We shall fight, we will win. Yes, we will win. Thank you for correcting that. <laughs> I'm going to hold on to that and use that as a way of signing off Tarek Alley. And thanks so much for joining us on Jacobin Radio. Okay, great. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine, and special thanks to Robert Brenner, and thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman. Mm-hmm.